0: My name is Tom Abbott from the University of Warwick. Sir John Falstaff is one of Shakespeare's most intriguing characters. Fat, vainglorious and cowardly, Falstaff remains a popular icon for many, demonstrating wit, humour and many traits we might recognise in ourselves. Paul Allen is a journalist, playwright and author and a fellow in creativity and performance at the Capital Centre at the University of Warwick. Paul's latest work on Falstaff is about to be published. Paul, Falstaff is considered to be one of Shakespeare's greatest characters. Why should we consider him, alongside the likes of Othello, Macbeth, Hamlet, as one of Shakespeare's greats? Well, he's very different from all those, and that's why we treat him so seriously.
1: I think he is, he's one of us. He's, he's a human being in a way that some of those are not. And indeed, even within the history plays, where he has most of his existence... When other people go to war saying, oh, well, we owe God a death, it doesn't really matter, he's saying, no, no, I wish it was bedtime, and I wish I was safe, and the whole day's work had been done. And I think that um, is Shakespeare's way of letting us into plays, that otherwise would be a kind of, not a pageant exactly, they would still be dramatic, but they would concern people unlike ourselves, whose actions bring us down or raise us up without any influence on our part, really, but who... Don't quite correspond to our own existence, and Falstaff does. Uh, he is, you know, he's frightened of death. He he makes a point of being frightened of death. He he um, in modern parlance, he's in serious denial about how old he is. He tells the Lord Chief Justice that we who are young must do such and such. And there he is with his grey hair and his, his fat belly spilling out over his uh, tights, and uh, and you and you just know that he's. Transparently, visibly, very old, and pretending not to be. Now, we all do a bit of that. It's. Um, I think it's no coincidence that I'm working on this now that I'm in middle age and beginning
0: to <laughs> spread a bit of the wasteland. You know, it's it's um, it's truthful. That's that's the reason that we go for him. Falstaff is unusual, I suppose, in that he actually appears in quite a number of different plays, and he's got quite a critical role um, in the relationship with Prince Hal in Henry the Part One and Two. How does um, Falstaff developed through those plays and what, what's the impact of his role? Well I think he's
1: there, this is one of the ways I look at it because I, I um, one of my subjects is dramaturgy, how plays actually work so I look at Falstaff to see how the character functions in the play what he's there for if you like, Now, one of the reasons he's there is that he's a delightful character and we're pleased to see him come on, however that's not really enough for a playwright and he's Mentioned as Hal is mentioned, neither of them by name, right at the end of Richard II. In fact, when, when Bricks, um more or less got rid of Richard II, but is not yet feeling guilty because he hasn't had him killed, uh, and he just says the one thing wrong with my um, happiness at the moment is that I, my unthrifty son. And he asks, what's going on, and his son, and he's told. Uh, his son is indeed in the taverns and the brothels and mugging people in the streets and stuff like that um, but that having been told that his father now has the crown he says he will unseat the lustiest challenger who, uh, to his father which Henry the Fourth, as he's about to be, takes some comfort from because it's given the two sides of Hal and Hal's companions, his boon companions are of course people like Falstaff so that where set up the contrast, if you like, uh, between the two sides of Hal and the different paths he might follow. And, and Shakespeare's cunning is that he does this very first mention in the context of another son rebelling against his father, and the news brought to the king about the way Hal's behaving is brought by Hotspur, who will be the great rival in the next play. So from the very start, Shakespeare is setting up an intricate knot of possible courses of action for the person who's got to be the greatest prince ever, and um, and then when he duly turns up in um, Henry the Fourth Part One, they're close friends as far as we can see. They're in the pub together, Falstaff possibly asleep, and he suddenly wakes up and says, "What's the time?" And uh, Hal says, "What difference does it make to you what the time is? <laughs> you never do anything," and um, and so there's a kind of playful sense between them, which allows Hal to. Express his um, adolescent side. You know, Hal's only 12 when his father comes to the throne, and he's had a tough childhood. Uh, Not that Shakespeare goes into that. And he's going through that phase of what psychologists call individuation. He's finding his own nature, um, partly through the different role models that he can see around him. So that's Falstaff's function at this stage. But how already knows that one day he's got to turn aside from him, and he doesn't tell Falstaff that there and then, but he tells us, and a bit later he tells Falstaff as well, but Falstaff doesn't hear it. And Falstaff's progress through the plays is of one who is in denial about his own future, as indeed about his own present, and who actually is getting probably a bit more sick as time goes on, so that Henry the Fourth, Part Two his first scene is talking to his page says, what does the doctor make of my water? And the page says, there are more diseases in it than the doctor knows about. <laughs> um, so so his, his decline is a kind of physical decline, I guess to echo the moral decline uh, of his life. Um, and again, here he is every man, and he is from time to time aware that he ought to repent and change his ways. Uh, indeed, even that very first scene, he says, he says, I think I'm going to mend my ways. And Hal says, um, oh yeah, where should we take a purse tomorrow? And just puts him straight back on, on the road to petition. <laughs> um, and it's Hal that does it, rather than the other way around. So so it's it's the interaction of, t- of two people, one of whom is a genuine rogue, but a rather likeable one, and another of whom is a teenager, wondering what to be when he
0: grows up. I mean... Falstaff is much more than a clown, isn't he? He 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 represents quite a, a counterbalance, I suppose, um, to the the formality of, of courtly life that we we see with a lot of the kind of the 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 sort of more somber characters in Shakespeare. He's he's very much a counterbalance to that, but still with quite a lot of. Um, Depth to that character. Yes, I think the the
1: role of the clones in Shakespeare and and outside Shakespeare is is very often to tell truth to power and be and have a position where they're safe while they do it. Falstaff is actually slightly more subversive than that because he's not safe. I mean, Hal could kill him any time and he'd get away with it. Um, he's not safe, and and he's in a history play. All the other clans are in. Well, King Lear is kind of a history play, but you don't. Think of it that way. The fool in Leo is not thought of in the same way. We're talking you know, Shakespeare, talking about history within the last 200 years for him. And he's put a character in, invented a character effectively, we might come on to that, um, who he's placed really close to power, but who is subversive of of that power. Now, in the end he doesn't subvert it because Hal turns out to be the prince that he says he's going to be, but he's he's put so close to that that he has to be regarded as much more than somebody who larks around in caps and bells. Um, I, nobody quite knows which actor played Falstaff to start with. It might have been Will Kemp, who was a clown, who um, appears to have fallen out with Shakespeare, possibly because, as Hamlet says, um, he's... Says more things than are set down for him, and he's inclined to do a little jig every so often in the <laughs> middle of a play, uh, and um, and we don't imagine Falstaff really doing that. But if Will Kemp played him and did do this, the summary killing of Falstaff <laughs> at the end of Henry the Fourth Part Two would have dealt with that, wouldn't it? Just like um, you know, an actor in a soap it gets really awkward; they just kill off the character, and <laughs> and um, and. I, I, th- I think actually that represents a serious tension between the clown playing him and the kind of character it is, which is a wonderful part for a comedian, but not for no- it's not knockabout. It's something, it's something it's, it's a lot of it's verbal, but a lot of it's character-based as well. And, um, and, and the character Full Staff has got to override um, a clown's natural wish to come in front of an audience and do something that will entertain them and make them applaud him.
0: He's much more about the actual driving narrative of the tale and, char- and the development of Hal as a character.
1: Yes, I think so. You see, I think the way character works in plays is to be... Well, a classic drama is a, is, is a character in tension with, with the situation he's in. Hamlet's in this terrible tension with the situation he's in. He really just wants to be a student for a bit more. Um, and to some extent, Hal is... He doesn't want to grow up that fast. Why should he? Why shouldn't he have a childhood like everybody else? And therefore, his relationships have to be with people who are other characters. I um, hesitate to say rounded in the case of all stuff, <laughs> because as he says in *Mary Wives Windsor*, he is two <laughs> yards round. Uh, but um, the character has to be has to be realistically conceived and executed, and that means that the plot has to lead him to his natural conclusion without distorting the character and equally the character must not be so large that he or she distorts the plot. Uh, that, that's, if you like, the kind of magic formula for for, for getting a good play out of it. And I, and I think that's, um, that's a balance that's really hard to get right.
0: The presence of Falstaff is most obvious in the histories. But he is a fictional character. What's the, where did he come from? What were the origins of, of the character? There's a play which
1: precedes the Henry IV plays called uh, The Famous Victories of Henry V, um, which we only have in a very truncated and, and, and um, thin version. It's rather hard to make out why it was so successful. In that, Henry has a sidekick called John Oldcastle, known as Jock or Jockey. Uh, who is a real historical character from Henry IV's and V's own time. Uh, he's a character who, this is not mentioned in the play, but he's a character who fell out with the king because he was a religious zealot. He was a Lollard, um, who by and large were kind of proto-Protestants who believed religion was far too important to leave to the Roman Catholic Church with corrupt priests and bishops and so on. Uh, and eventually he was burnt, and probably Hal watched him because Hal and his father were very keen on stamping out heresy. In fact, they invented the crime of heresy as far as English courts are concerned. There's little about this character other than the fact that at one time he'd been friendly with Hal and in the end falls out with him that is similar to Falstaff. I think I think most people now think that Shakespeare just lifted the name from the previous play. He then gets to a situation where the descendants of that man complain and so he has to change the name and it's, and it's very tricky because... Falstaff has two syllables and Old Castle has three, and where you've got lines blank first, that's a problem. Um, but he goes for Falstaff, possibly from the Sir John Fastolf, who's in the Henry Sixth plays, who had a reputation quite undeserved, as it turns out, of being a coward. Um, and I imagine a kind of green room banter which just moves the L from Fastolf from the second syllable to the first. and. And there are saying, ha, ah, calling him fast off, will he's more like Falstaff, isn't he? And they'll do the kind of fist-drooping gesture to go with it, <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> um, and, um, and so he, he gets the name from there. That doesn't stop people looking for other sources for, for the kind of person Falstaff was, because that bit of name has almost no kind of characteristics attached to it that he can bring to the play. And Stephen Greenblatt, in his book Will in the World, a recent biography... Uh, suggests that the playwright Robert Greene, who died I- about um, five or six years before these plays were written, in circumstances quite similar to Falstaff's death as described in Henry V, i.e. in a pub uh, separate from all the people he was either supposedly married to or or close to him, uh, and uh, spouting these rather nasty things about Shakespeare himself, he might have been the model and, that, and, and, and that, that's very possible. Um, but it doesn't really it doesn't really take us up to the character because you know we do know things about green um that he was a glutton uh, that he lived a riotous life uh, that he was um, estranged from his wife, and so on but um people say that he wasn't hugely bloated and um and really Falstaff is too big a character in in both senses to be the product of one model in that way. I think all sorts of other things go in, you see. I mean, the tradition of lords of misrule at the Feasts of Fools that were still existing in, in the late 16th century will be there. These people who were contemporarily in charge and presided over anything goes feasts in which the slave could mock the king and all the rest of it. Go way back to Saturnalia of ancient Rome and maybe even beyond that. There's something of that in full stuff. but uh, whereas Toby Belch in Twelfth Night because it's Twelfth Night obviously is having riotous behaviour over Christmas Falstaff seems to suggest riotous behaviour right through the year right through a lifetime and that's much more subversive because it's not controlled and it, um, it, it, it could change things and um, I think there's a I think the trouble with finding any one source is that it's never quite
0: enough You've described a a cowardly knight, someone who is a drunken, gluttonous um, uh, layabout. How was he perceived by the theatre-goers at the time? Was he a popular character? Yes, uh, he always
1: sold seats. Um, He and Shylock, oddly enough, sold seats. The thing that we have to remember is how much the Elizabethans enjoyed verbal wit and daring of the imagination. And he has those absolutely in spades. Uh, there's, there's an essay written in 1777, I think, about the cowardice of Falstaff, arguing that actually he's not really a coward at all. There are lots of circumstances in, in his life which lead to him being the way he is now. And and look at the way his mind just leaps everywhere, very fast, very cleverly ahead. You see, I think there's, a, there's an element in the relationship between Hal and Falstaff which is not... Quite as comfortable as all that. That Hal is looking for ways to catch him out, and they do this highwayman stuff on Gads Hill near Rochester in Kent, where Falstaff is one of a group that steals some money, and then Hal and his friends come along afterwards in disguise and take it off them. And they know Falstaff will come back to the pub and say there were twenty of them, there were a hundred of them, whatever. Um, and he does, and he and he knows that they know that he's lying, and it goes up, it goes, it's two, and then it's four, and then it's nine, and then it's twenty, and suddenly there's a whole regiment virtually taking this money off him. Um, and Hal thinks he's caught him, and he says, "No, no, I knew it was you all the time. I knew it by instinct because you're the true prince, and I would know that, wouldn't I?" And saying you're the true prince is very cunning because his father usurp the throne. So Hal has to be the true prince to make it right. So he's found a a way that Hal can't get out of. And then later when, again, Hal has eavesdropped on him and overhears him saying really bad things about Hal, He says, well, I suppose you're going to say it's instinct again. He says, no, 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 I didn't realise you were there at all. No, I I had no idea you heard me. Um, I was actually saying these nasty things about you because I'm surrounded by wicked people here and I don't want them to attach themselves to you because that would be bad for you. Your father will thank me for this, he says. (laughs) And and he's always got those little leaps ahead that he can do. And they loved it because it's, it's with one bound he was free. It's not a physical bound, it's an intellectual bound, but he's always able just to escape in the nick of time.
0: So where does *Mary Wives of Windsor fit in, then? Because there's the, the tale that this was a request of, of Queen Elizabeth, that Shakespeare write uh, another play for Falstaff.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, the tradition is that she asked to see the fat knight in love, um... Whether there's any truth in that, nobody really knows. But um, what Shakespeare does is not show him in love, of course. It shows him um, trying to seduce women in order to get their money, more of showing show lust rather yeah. than. Well, than I love. don't. I don't know if he's even bothered about that, really. I mean, there's some question as to whether. I mean, partly because of his name, some question as to whether he could actually <laughs> perform if called on anyway, um, and, and and indeed, hell and point have phrases to that effect in uh, part two. But I think he, what he, Shakespeare. Does is realise that actually him in love would be slightly pathetic, whereas him aiming to get a thousand pounds off rich husbands through, through wives is is a much funnier idea. Falstaff is still there as a kind of test of morality. Uh, it's a different kind of test because the play is a farce. It's not, um, it's not the same sort of um, area between comedy and tragedy that the history plays are. It is a farce, but he's testing the bourgeoisie of Windsor and of course they withstand that test in the sense that they don't give in to him at all but he does have a small revenge which is that they are trying to marry off one couple is trying to marry off their daughter to a courtier that they think is unsuitable and they think it's unsuitable because he's a courtier and once was uh, a friend of the madcap prince of Wales the chaos that he is able to create as a kind of Lord of Miserable, albeit one who's being beaten up on this occasion. The chaos enables the true lovers to get off under cover of darkness. I think the other thing to say about him is that whereas in the history plays he's the person without power, in Merry Wives of Windsor, because he's a knight come from court, he's perceived as a person with power. But the play eventually tells us that actually having money is power, and treating your wives as property is part of
0: that. That how have our perceptions of Falstaff changed then? Because as you indicated there, I mean, he's a character who's been studied um, quite extensively mm. over the last sort of three, four hundred years. How, has, how have our perceptions of that character moved on?
1: How, how it tends to change is much more to do with how do people judge the rejection of Falstaff by Hal. Was Hal a complete and utter bastard to do this or did Falstaff have it coming all along? Hazlitt, for example, in the early 18th century says, I can never forgive Howell for that uh, because he sympathised with full stuff but I think Hazlitt probably had Republican tendencies anyway so it's not surprising. Uh, And then you get to the period of the height of the British Empire at the end of the Victorian era when he gets enlisted really in the whole business of the glory of Britishness of which Henry V is summit, and and therefore, of course, Falstaff had it coming to him, because he's, he threatens all this. And then early in the 20th century, particularly just after the First World War, you start to get um, an interest in associating him with uh, what people call Deep England, a deep English-ness, which is, is separate from what the politicians do. So that um, two composers, for instance, Holst and Vaughan Williams, start using folk tunes in setting the full-staff story to music, and the poet Edward Thomas um, producing an anthology for um, soldiers to carry in their knapsacks in the trenches in the First World War which he called This England as if it was inspired by the very big John Gaunt speech in, in Richard the Second which is just full of um, book titles, every line has got about three book titles in This Eden, This Other Eden, this whatever it is, Set in the Silvery Sea, etc. But but then Thomas doesn't include that, but does include two of Falstaff's big speeches, which are his rejection of honour and his um, hymn to sherry sack, a drink that is his particular tipple. Um, uh, so there's a kind of readiness, I suppose, with different political ideas creeping in in the twentieth century to try and see him as somehow representative of, of those changes of of perspective and then actors come to it and look at it in different ways and the there was one famous production after the second world war when um the how when he comes to the line i know thee not old man which is the rejection of Falstaff, and there's a long speech following it did it um by going up to Falstaff and embracing him uh, as if to say sorrowfully i'm sorry i've got to say goodbye to you now um in order to make health sympathetic and at a time, I suppose, when an audience was likely to be reeling at the notion of partings. People have been lost in the war and so on. Um, and so that suited that time. Fast forward 30 years and you get to Robert Stevens at Stratford in somewhere around about 1990, presenting Falstaff as somebody rather melancholy, rather aware of... Uh, the way he's aging and is and and is doomed, aware of his own mortality, I suppose. And um, I know one critic compared that to the way Rembrandt's self portraits get closer and closer to seeing uh, him uh, as an old man and then a dead man almost um, before before he gives up. So there is the opportunity for all those changes. And, and now we live in a time when almost anything goes to some extent, and you you, you know you you
0: pay your money and you take your choice. The Falstaff is a character that's moved beyond just the theatre and and Verdi's opera is sort of probably the most famous example where uh, Falstaff's story has been picked up in a different context. He is a character who's transcended just that stage, isn't Mm -hmm. he? He's been picked up by a lot of different artists and in a lot of different contexts. Yes, I mean, Verdi is is probably the best
1: example of that. Um, And Verdi composed it in very old age himself. It's only his second comic opera and at the age of 80 he suddenly decides to do a comic opera and he has a librettist who is interested in Shakespeare as much as he is. And the librettist actually does take things from Henry IV Part I as well as Merry Wives of Windsor, although the story is Merry Wives of Windsor. Uh, and Verdi in particular responds to the fact that Shakespeare likes to put tragedy and comedy together. There's a long operatic tradition, though, or, or tradition of setting to music, which get, probably goes back to the middle of the eighteenth century. One of the early people to do it was Salieri, the person who, according to Amadeus, tried to kill Mozart, and um, and then the German composer Nikolai, and and they all have slightly different emphases. They all pick on slightly different things to make make a lot of. And then in um, the um, late 70s Robert Nye wrote a novel about Falstaff as if he was Sir John Fastolf uh, which is a huge sprawling rambustious novel which entirely chimes with the character Falstaff and says in it almost everything that you might ever think about Falstaff Um, but at the end says and actually maybe all this is a lie quite cunning Uh, Orson Welles put the various Henry IV Falstaff scenes together to make um his film *Chimes at Midnight*, and he crops up in my own private Idaho, you know, which is a reasonably obscure, rather cult film. So he does sprawl hugely beyond the confines of, of Shakespeare's invention, which I think is a sign that there's always a kind of unfinished business with full stuff. I feel that that you know we can't quite ever encapsulate him.
0: Is that partly because his his final demise is actually? An as- almost an aside as part of Henry V. Hal doesn't need him anymore, he's now Henry, he's the complete character of the, the perfect prince. Um, Falstaff's kind of left to die off stage, isn't he? There's a sort of an incompleteness about his end. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of argument as to what happened there, Whether
1: because at the very end of Henry IV, you know, there's an epilogue which says, um, all right, the next play is going to be about Henry V and his battles in France, his courtship of, uh, uh, of Princess Catherine, and... Um, and Falstaff will accompany him to France where, for all I know, he'll die of a sweat. Sweat being a fever. And it's not clear at what point Shakespeare decided that Falstaff had to go, whether it was because a particular actor walked out or because he wanted to get rid of a particular actor. Nobody nobody knows, and I guess nobody ever will. And I always think that that, that epilogue hints that Falstaff will have to die. So. I think there's a bit of Shakespeare that recognises it's inevitable but hasn't quite confronted it yet, probably, in his own mind. And then when he comes to Henry V, which is a different kind of play with precious little comedy in it. I mean, some of the sidekicks, Pistol, Nim and Bardolph, are there, but two of them get hanged for, for looting. And so it's not, it's not the play with the same kind of texture. It's a much more clear arc of military valour. Uh, in which, you know, I have no doubt that Henry is meant to appear a hero, and you can't, you can't listen to those great speeches without being thrilled by them. I don't think so. I don't. It's not that Shakespeare is saying he's killed off Falstaff, and now look what he's doing—he's slaughtering people in France. I think it's still a heroic play, but um, I think he realizes that if Falstaff were present around the time when various bishops are doing the equivalent of discovering weapons of mass destruction in France so that Henry is justified in invading. Falstaff would have just subverted it too much to make what then goes on to happen possible or possible to be shown in the light that Shakespeare wanted to show it.
0: Does Falstaff's end really sign him off as a tragic character rather than as a comedian?
1: Well, it means that if you put all the, shape, all the Falstaff scenes together, as people like Orson Welles have done, and end with the death, then he has to be a tragic character. But that's not really how Shakespeare writes it. Um, He's—he's—it um, is—it is unquestionably sad, but it's a sadness that I think we can be satisfied with at the end of Henry the Fourth, Part Two. That, in you know, you look at individual plays, and it's, I'm perfectly happy to put the two Henry the Fourth plays together because they are called Part One and Part Two. But you look at the structure and the function of character in those things, and you can see that's where he's heading. He's heading for rejection and and without the support of Hal he's nothing anyway so I think that death is inevitable it's the right thing to do I think it's also the case that Henry never smiles again or never laughs again shall we say except possibly in triumph occasionally and nobody ever says anything affectionate towards him ever again You know, he's taking on the responsibility of kingship, it's going to be a lonely place and he won't have his best mate with him.
0: Does does, does Falstaff's death mark that transition? You see, I think
1: the thing that um, we can look at now with slightly more psychological insight into the way people grow up is that if Falstaff is a kind of surrogate father to him because his own father is so boring, frankly... And he himself is, in any case, a teenager looking for different role models. If that's the case, the day his father dies, he doesn't need the alternative any longer. So the day his father dies is the day he rejects full stuff. And there is an awareness that he would do that all the time. But it marks absolutely a tra- the transition point in, in Henry's development. Something which historically was described about Henry from his own lifetime onwards, actually. People said... Uh, that he changed overnight when he became king. Um, so, so it was a sudden and dramatic moment, and therefore this rather sudden and dramatic rejection of him is, is, is in place. Paul, thank you very much. Thank you.